The text from my message this morning is our unison scripture reading and the story of the Good Samaritan and the context in which it appears. I would imagine that most of us have watched enough courtroom adventure on television to know just how beguiling and disarming lawyers can be, at least on television. They'll feign sympathy for a witness. They'll pretend to be interested in a matter of importance to the witness, but for no other purpose than setting that witness up for a devastating question that will destroy his credibility and win the lawyer's case. In the 10th chapter of Luke, we find reference to such a man, a lawyer who probably seemed to those observing this exchange to be making sincere and serious inquiries about a matter of great importance in life, but in reality, asking Jesus questions that were simply intended to stump him, to embarrass him, to discredit him. We began a discussion of this conversation last Sunday, paying particular attention to the story that Jesus told as a part of it. I'd like to continue that discussion this morning. Last week, we looked at the lawyer's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I trust you agree with me that whether the question was sincerely asked or not, it's hard to imagine a more important question that anybody could ask themselves. You and I would be foolish not to ask it ourselves, for ourselves, and we should tremble at the thought of dying without knowing its answer. What must I do to have eternal life? I hope that's a question that you have asked. I hope that by the grace of God, it's a question that you have answered. In our discussion last week, I suggested that the story of the Good Samaritan is just that. It's a story. Luke doesn't identify it as a parable. And in fairness for the question about its nature, we have to recognize that in the Gospel of Luke, there are other stories that are identified as parables and just a few that are not. But those few that are not, which would include the story of the Good Samaritan and the story of rich man and the Lazarus, have about them the marks of something that is a little less than real history, leading easily to the suggestion that they too, although they're not identified as such, are parables. But in the final analysis, it doesn't matter whether this is a fictitious illustration of a moral point or a real story involving real events and real people. The main point is the main point. And that main point is significant to the intense student of Scripture and to the casual reader as well. And that is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be about the task of loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. I reminded you last week that from its very beginning, Jesus' public life was hounded by people who at first were suspicious of him and then became afraid of him and began to connive among themselves to plot his destruction. These were the same men who had sent spies to check on the work of John the Baptist. Occasionally, these men would rise to challenge Jesus usually in the form of questions. Some of those questions were spontaneous, just arising out of teaching moments. Some of them were carefully crafted 
with the idea in mind of discrediting Jesus. This lawyer, this student of the Old Testament law, appears to have been one of them. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we find the word scribe. A scribe was a lawyer. A scribe or a lawyer then, as a lawyer is now, is not only a student but a practitioner of the law, and the scribes were a recognized professional class in Israel at this time. They studied the law. They taught the law, and they were looked to to apply the law in adjudicating cases involving the law, and thus they were both lawyers and they were judges. We need to be reminded that there are characters in the New Testament that in our imaginations always wear black hats, the Pharisees, for example. Because so many of the Pharisees opposed Jesus and so many of them were involved in the plot to execute him, we tend to think that all Pharisees were black-hearted people, but that isn't true. Some of the Pharisees were righteous men and some of them became his followers. And so it is with these scribes or these lawyers. There was nothing inherently evil or unsavory about their work any more than there is about the practice of law in our time. Some of the scribes were godly men, but many of them were not. The righteous of them among them were men like Ezra, whose testimony and story are found in the Old Testament. In the seventh chapter of Ezra, we read that before he went back to Israel to become a part of the reclamation of the land and the identity of the people, he made a commitment. His commitment was to know the word of God and to live the word of God and only then to teach the word of God. And there certainly were scribes or loyalty or lawyers in Jesus' day that had made this same kind of commitment. On the other hand, the ungodly scribes were insensitive to such virtue and blind to the greater truth contained in the law that they studied so zealously. They studied that law to satisfy their own narrow interests, one of which was to enhance their standing among men. They loved to teach the law. They thrived on opportunities to settle disputes before the law, not because they loved their neighbors and wanted to be helpful, but because each of these occasions only increased their power and their prestige. The historian tells us that this lawyer stood to ask his question of Jesus. If you're a student of the Bible, you're trying to imagine the setting here in which a man would stand to ask another man a question. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you already know that the common practice was for teachers to sit and for those who were being taught to stand. Matthew 5, 1 and 2, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We read, in seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Matthew 13, Matthew's record of those great parables of the kingdom of heaven begins, on that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. A great multitude came to him so that he got into a boat and sat. Then the whole multitude stood along the shore and he spoke many things to them. In Matthew 24, the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus teaching things that at the time were yet future begins, 
Now, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Ordinarily, teachers sat. Those who were being taught stood. We wonder how it would mean then, what it would mean, that this lawyer stood to ask a question because if he was in the crowd, he would already have been standing as one of those listening to Jesus' words. But there's another interesting possibility. And that, that is, it wasn't that Jesus was teaching and the lawyer came along, but rather the lawyer was teaching and Jesus came along. And when the lawyer saw Jesus coming toward him, he stood up to challenge him with this apparently innocuous question. If we're right about the character of this man particularly, we notice throughout the record of their exchange how kind and how respectful Jesus was of this man with his black heart. Jesus could have destroyed this man in any kind of debate about the law. He could have humiliated him in front of these various, very people that he was trying to impress. But instead, Jesus spoke to him in gentle tones and led him along the way to answer his own question. And in the Lord's kindness and from his patience, we learn something of great value in dealing with difficult people in our lives. Because he is not only our Savior, he's not only our Lord, he is also the model, the one after whom we are to pattern our lives and behavior. There a dialogue consisted of a question asked by the lawyer, a question asked by Jesus, an answer to that question, a statement about that answer, another question, and then the story of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer's initial question was, of course, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We may safely assume that this man was also a Pharisee. Pharisees were one of the sects of the Jews at that time. Their principal opposite number were the Sadducees, and they were different in many ways, including their view of what happens to people when they die. The Pharisees understood that life goes on. Sadducees believed that death is the end of everything. A Pharisee would have agreed with the testimony of the book of Hebrews that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. In what spirit this man's question was asked, we don't know. But that it was an important question to him as a lawyer, as a student of the law, and as a Pharisee is certain. Jesus responded to his question with a question of his own. He said, how do you understand the Bible? What is written in the law? How do you read it? He asked the man. And whether immediately or after a time of thought, the man answered the question. But when we hear Jesus' answer to this question, what must I do to have eternal life? We who cut our spiritual teeth in the fundamentalist evangelical wing of the Protestant church are somewhat put off by the way that Jesus answers his question. It is not the answer that we have heard all of our lives. It is not the answer that we would be inclined to give when someone asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus said it, and it becomes something that we have to take very seriously and incorporate into our theology of salvation. 
The scribe's answer was apparently as wise as his question because he cited the two great laws of the Old Testament. Laws that were never intended to be substitutes for the other laws, but rather their twin foundations. He quoted the scriptures that say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus said, You've answered well. Do this, and you will live. And again, we who were raised in that certain wing of the Protestant church find ourselves startled by what he says. I suppose that we could say that Jesus was having an off day, that he was tired, had things on his mind, was in a hurry. We might say that he misspoke himself. But then we remember this Jesus is God, and God does not misspeak himself. And then we remember another dialogue that took place, very, very similar to this one. It's a dialogue between Jesus and a biblical character that we have come to know as the rich young ruler. In that conversation, the rich young ruler said to Jesus, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? To which Jesus responded, Keep the commandments. The rich young ruler, wanting clarification, asked, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. The question is, what must I do to have eternal life? And again, Jesus says, keep the law, keep the commandments, and life is yours. In these two dialogues, the commandments mentioned are different, but the result is the same. And the one that we call Lord seems to be saying, if you keep the law, you will be saved, you will have eternal life. Now, the problem that you and I have with that, apart from anything that we know personally from the scriptures, is based on 500 years of biblical preaching in Protestant churches, teaching that has insisted unequivocally that faith and faith alone is the means of redemption. Paul said in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And in the fourth chapter of Romans, he continues this theme, where he asks, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and that was accounted to him as righteousness. Some of you may know that for several decades, liberals in the Protestant church have insisted that there is a great gap between the teachings of Christ on the one hand and the teaching of Paul on the other regarding the grounds for salvation. And they tell us that the church has made a terrible mistake of choosing to follow Paul rather than to follow Jesus. And on the surface, it seems that we have stumbled upon evidence that the liberals have been right all of this time. 
How are you and I to understand what Jesus said in response to this man's question? Can it possibly be true that Jesus believed that eternal life is to be gained by doing works according to the law? And if Jesus believed that, why did he also teach that it was necessary for him to come and to suffer and to die if the means of salvation were already available to men? And I remind you that we're wrestling with this question in the context of the worship of a Reformed church. We as a church accept the conclusions of John Calvin about salvation, not because we admire John Calvin, but because we agree with John Calvin. And from time to time, from the pulpit of this Reformed church, the rhetorical question has been asked, how can I know whether I am a Christian? I hope that question is important to you. We live in a culture that exercises far more presumption than faith, that assumes that everybody except a handful who claim other religions or none at all are Christians, assume that everybody has eternal life, everybody's going to heaven when they die. Those are preposterous claims that Satan has foisted on people. I hope it is important to you to ask, how do I know whether I am a Christian? The answer to that question cannot possibly be, I know that I'm a Christian because at the end of an evangelistic service, I walked to the end of the aisle and repeated a prayer after the man who met me there. The answer cannot possibly be, I was baptized and became a member of the church. The answer cannot possibly be, I read and then signed a piece of paper that committed me to certain basic Christian beliefs and practices. The only way that you and I can know whether we truly are Christians is to examine our own hearts, our minds, our lives as openly and honestly as we're able, and to see whether we find evidence in ourselves that the Spirit of God has taken up his residence within us. Do I find that my conscience has come alive and now convicts me of things that once bothered me not at all? I tried to read the Bible as a boy and it made no sense. But now I hold it in my hands and it seems to come alive. My thoughts, my desires, my language, my humor are being gradually changed by some mysterious sweet presence deep within me. Any person who was able to say any of those things can probably smile in the presence of God in the confidence that he almost surely is a Christian. And more fitting for this particular discussion, do you find a strange, inexplicable delight in the worship of God? Do you love to sing his praises and to sit quietly in this place or some other with the people who have come together for that purpose? Is it your desire as much as your sense of duty that causes you to seek out a church on Sunday mornings? In other words, are you beginning to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, with all of your soul? And are you aware of a trend in yourself to care more 
for other people, to be more kind toward them, to be more patient with them, to be more inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt rather than rushing to their judgment. In other words, are you beginning to love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself? Jesus did not say, keep the commandments, and as a result of keeping those commandments, you will live. What he said was, if you are saved, if you are truly alive, then you will find yourself wanting to keep the commandments. He didn't promise if you love God as he commands you, and if you really love your neighbor, you will gain by that eternal life. Instead, what he says is among the many signs that you already have eternal life is your love for God and your concern for your neighbor. The lawyer found his question dealt with in an unexpected and a disarming way. He thought that Jesus would respond to his question by a declaration, a statement of some sort that he could then sink his teeth into and criticize in some ways. In fact, that's the reason that he asked it. And when this didn't happen, he needed to justify himself. In the presence of the crowd that he may have just been teaching himself, he needed to excuse himself in their sight for asking what now appears to be a dumb question. And so he followed up, his eyes narrowed. He thought, I've got him with this question. And so he said to the Lord, and just who is my neighbor? In a press conference, we would call this a follow-up question. To a man with a jots and tittles kind of approach to the study of the scriptures, the technical limits of obligation were of great importance. If God requires me to love my neighbor, then I need to know exactly who my neighbor is and who my neighbor is not. The man who lives next door certainly qualifies, but how about the man who lives three houses down? How about the guy in the neighborhood who borrowed something from me but returned it? He's my neighbor, but the fellow who borrowed something from me and did not, is he my neighbor? But the question had far broader implications for this man. Many of you are aware that from the beginning of their existence as a nation, the Hebrews had non-Hebrews living among them. And this was a thorn in their side throughout their national history. You will recall that God had told them to slay or to drive away all of those non-Hebrews, but they had not been faithful. And they lived with the consequences of their disobedience the rest of their national life. A scribe in Jesus' day might agree that any of the Hebrews still living in the land qualified as neighbors, but he had questions about the non-Hebrews. He might have been wondering about the hated Romans who marched in sharp military formation along Jewish roads and whose governors set limits on their freedoms. Are they neighbors under the law? He might well have asked. Or what about those despised religious half-breeds to the north, those people we call the Samaritans. Surely God doesn't expect us to love them the same way we're supposed to love one another, may well have been in this lawyer's mind. And before we sneer too eagerly at the legalism of this lawyer, let's be aware that as Christians, 
as we engage in the stewardship of the resources of life, we are called by God to be discriminating in that stewardship. In Galatians 6, Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those of the household of faith. Which means there are times when we as Christians, our resources being limited, have to choose between helping a non-believer who has a need and a believer who has a need, making these decisions among the most difficult of life. The lawyer's question was not inappropriate, but I suspect that his motives were, and it was to address these motives that Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. I urge you to note that the man the Good Samaritan helped was totally disabled. He was too weak even to brush the flies away from his gaping wounds. There was no doubt about his condition. He was not like the people who sometimes come to our doors or approach us on the streets or in the parking lots of the malls of the city asking for money. In that regard, I heard a man who was wise beyond his years say that his practice when he is approached by such of these is to say, I will not give you money, but if you're hungry, I'll take you to the hamburger stand and buy you a meal. Or I'll go to the grocery store and buy you a a sack of groceries. Or I will make sure that you can get gas for your car. And he says that, by and large, his offers of this sort are turned down. But Jesus was not describing a man asking for spare change, but one that was in obviously desperate states. I call your attention that the Samaritan used oil and wine to minister to this man's uh, injuries and point out to you that this was not a religious ritual. This was medicinal. The wine would serve as a mild disinfectant. The oil would protect the wounds and perhaps ease their pain. And some of you are aware that on very scant scriptural grounds, some religious bodies, including the General Assembly of our denomination, have made the anointing with oil a kind of semi-sacrament, a practice that I would be delighted to hear that they have abandoned. And finally, I urge you to notice the thoroughness of the care the stranger provided for this man. He went to him, bent over him, examining the extent of his injuries. He probably spoke to him in reassuring tones as he was applying the oil and wine to those wounds. And then because the wounded man was unable to walk, he lifted him bodily onto the back of his own animal led that animal some distance to an inn where he made the arrangements to stay for the night, stayed with the man, constantly vigilant to his needs, and when he departed in the morning, he left money with the innkeeper to continue that care. And I have read that the amount of money that he left probably would have provided shelter for this man for as long as two months. And he promised that he would reimburse the innkeeper for any additional expenses that he encountered. The story of the Good Samaritan is one of compassion, of inconvenience, of great physical effort, and of financial sacrifice. And all of this for a total stranger, a man the Samaritan would probably never see again. And God closes the conversation by saying, go and do likewise. In the days ahead, it isn't very likely that any one of us is going to stumble upon a stranger beaten and left for dead in the ditch beside a road that we're walking or driving along. But most of us will almost certainly come very close to someone 
in need of another sort. If some of you had the opportunity to come up to this place and give the testimony of your creation, of your conversion, you would tell the story, perhaps, of a total stranger God let into your life who explained to you who Jesus is, who you are, why he died, and what he offers to those who will embrace him by faith. All of us have stories to tell about people who were there when we needed someone to be there. People who offered help in time of desperation, counsel in times of decision, comfort and encouragement in times of emptiness and sadness. Some of those folks we knew, some of them were strangers. Let's leave this place with the story of the Good Samaritan etched in our hearts and minds. Let's leave this place praying for ourselves that in the days that lie just ahead, God would make us alert to the needs of the people he causes us to pass by, that by his grace they may one day have stories like ours to tell. Let us pray. Our Father, you call us occasionally to make a difference. You create opportunities around us. We pray that by your marvelous grace and by the inner working of your Holy Spirit, we might be not only sensitive to the needs of those that we meet, but eager to respond to them as you have to ours. In Jesus' name, amen.